Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And we're back finally. Finally after the the hiatus we've had. It's uh, the fifth episode here. Kara, what are we talking about? We are going to be talking about the rise of China today. China. The rise of China. How it became basically a world power. And I'm definitely not an economist, so I just wanted to start with that. Because we definitely do get into some kind of economic stuff. Where I feel like this is like a 50-50 episode, Joe. I feel like 50-50 history, 50-50 a lot of economics. Yeah. No, Definitely. And this is the casual historians and the casual economics, so. Yes. <laughs> casual economics as well. Yeah. But in recent news, the reason we haven't recorded in a long time is because I bought a condo. Very exciting. Oh, yeah. So I'm excited about that. Um, Lots of prep. Just just a lot of work. I just I haven't had the bandwidth, as they mm-hmm. say in the business world, to uh, record the podcast. But we're back. But we're back. And we're excited. We have quite the episode. Very relevant given mm-hmm. China in, in general. I feel like China almost always is relevant now, but I feel like this the big question is, you know, how did we get here? Um, yeah. I'm did- certainly curious. I feel like, you know, I was just thinking, I feel like it's such a blind spot in like U.S. history classes where I, in Asia in general, I feel like we don't learn a lot about that region of the world unless we're at war with them right and if we're not at war with them then uh, we just don't know much yeah i mean culturally they're just so different right it's Mm -hmm. it's not like we're learning about like european history i feel like we we get a healthy dose of european history and south american history because geographically speaking we're close to south america and we have ties there european obviously you know america the Europeans like founded by yeah, the exactly. British. So we get healthy dose of that. Um, Africa, definitely some s- small amount of history, I would say. Yeah. Just I mean, I feel like probably only in like slavery. relation to slavery, unfortunately. Yeah. We're like learning about the cultures. Yeah. You don't really I've hear always, as much about. I've always really enjoyed Asian history. I think it's cool. Like Genghis Khan and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Japanese history, samurais, shoguns. Um, so, yeah, I definitely want to do more of that because it's yeah. interesting. No, I feel like, you know, this is an exciting um, episode because we haven't really done anything in Asia yet. China. China. <laughs> Comes from China. All right. Then why don't you kick us off? All right. Where, sure. where are we starting? We're starting with imperial we're, history. Yeah, we're going way back. Way back. Largely because I think this will be good context moving into the um, like 40s and 50s and um, leadership out under Mao Zedong. True, 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 um, true. 
But so kind of asking ourselves, you know, where has China always been in relation um, to the rest of the world? And essentially, Portugal was one of the first major European empires to trade with China. And also, they were like, actually, I did not know this about them. They were like, actually, a lot of the sources say semi-dominated Southeast Asia because in a lot of ways, they just had, they were almost like occupying a lot of Southeast Asian nations, but they never had full control, like often, you know, fighting off a lot of rebellions. So they were never able to like fully cement their position. However, and this is in the 1500s. However, they actually ended up controlling Macau all the way up till 1999. This was considered the first and last um, Chinese colony because everything that you're about to hear about, none of the European nations that had involvement with China, it's not like they ever actually colonized China. Um, But Macau was by Portugal, and Portugal had control over that territory until 1999 when they ultimately gave it up to China. And Macau is Hong Kong, right? No, I think that's separate. Macau is like um, a small grouping of islands, and then Hong Kong is like just... A larger because uh, Hong Kong autonomous was autonomous region on the south coast of China across the Pearl River Delta from Hong Kong. So close close to close. Hong Kong. Yeah. Giant casinos and malls. Well, so that's and what it's like well considered also like um, probably pretty lit, I, I heard a quote about like the Las Vegas of the East. Oh, interesting. Like known for lots of casinos. Oh, Honestly. Yeah. The Las I, Vegas of Asia. Las Vegas of Asia. There's um a great scene in, and I'll have to remember which James the Bond hangover movie. Hangover Two. Well, I was, <laughs> That's immediately what I thought of was I, the Hangover I, Two. I, am, I mean, two which different brains, right? Like you're thinking the Hangover, and then I'm thinking like a Daniel Craig James Bond movie, but it was yeah. pretty good. Um, yeah, really great scene. But so, anyways, then we're gonna like jump way up in time, but just like <laughs> that gives you the idea. You know, European influence had been in that region, at least since the 1500s. But it wasn't really until the 1840s with the two opium wars that China was forcibly opened to widespread international influence. And just a quick-ish, a quick-ish summary of the opium wars. And let's hear it. This is all quoting, so I'm going to be doing a little bit of reading. Um Essentially, Great Britain, I feel like the biggest colonial enemy of most places in the world, um, had been buying increasing quantities of tea from China. It's always the tea. It's always the tea for them. issues, Are they okay? Are they okay? Um, But it had few products that China was interested in buying by way of exchange, which I find interesting, you know, where was China kind of like, eh, we have everything we need. We don't really need anything from you. Um, So what ends up happening is Great Britain finds something that China would like. Or at least, right? Yeah, like, (laughs) hey, how can we get them addicted to something? Um, A resulting steady drain of British silver to pay for the tea was eventually stopped by Great Britain's ascendancy in China. So you have to think, so like they're they're trading in China, but this is also around the same time that they're um, becoming an imperial power in India. With British merchants in control of India's foreign trade and with the financing of this trade centered in London, a three-way exchange developed. The tea Britain brought in China. Three-way trade. It, well, it makes me think that there was it's like a-, a three-way trade in like the NHL. Oh. <laughs> Cash considerations for tea and heroin. 
Well, I was going to say there was another kind of the triangle trade, triangle trade in like at, in the Atlantic or something. I think you're thinking of the Bermuda Triangle. No. <laughs> <laughs> but like that one was like slaves would come from Africa and would land in the Caribbean. And then from the Caribbean, sugar would go up to the U.S. Slaves with a no movement clause. Like, I can't remember. I can't remember the full triangle. But like, so I just found that interesting where I'm like three way exchanges. Um, But anyways, a three way exchange developed. The tea Britain bought in China was paid for by India's exports of opium. So Britain's not paying for tea with silver anymore. They're paying with opium Um, and cotton to China. Oh, and then also India had a lot of cotton. So like they paid with cotton as well. But so the thing about opium, if nobody's ever heard, it is highly addictive and unfortunately like super destructive to the body. You know, once you've become addicted, it's it's like mm. a very sad tale of like essentially like, oh, yeah, Great, Brit- <laughs> Great Britain was just like, hey, like, let's just like get, smoke get China like hooked. Den. Yeah, like let's just get them hooked on drugs and then, you know, it works out for us. Hooked on phonics. It's pretty messed up. Um, yeah, but honestly... You see it quite a bit, and this kind of reminds me of Narcos, obviously. Mm-hmm, which we've been watching. I've seen all of Narcos, but you've never seen it. There's Kaya barking, yep. ruining the podcast. <laughs> um, but it's like kind of like with South America being like, oh, Miami, the Americans are going to love this stuff when they first started making cocaine. Mm-hmm. And then they just got all of like Florida and America. Hooked on it. Yeah, New York City hooked on hooked on cocaine, and it became just like super expensive. And then they started making crack. Because it was cheaper. Oh, God. <laughs> but it's just like the exploitation of people. Well, right. Well, I mean, it's an, it's an easy it's wealth an easy, for yourself. Easy payday, right? You, like if you know someone's hooked on it. I mean, it's the same thing with like cigarette companies yeah, in this country, like the, you know. The great irony of this country is like yeah. <laughs> everything is just hyper capitalistic. No yeah. one really cares about the effects on people's bodies. Exactly. The effects That's on people's story bodies. story for another day. Yes, story for another day. Do the history but of fast food in this general, country? General, ooh. Maybe we do something like that. Yeah. That would be kind of fun. But, Why this country's... But general themes, I mean, like, nothing's ever truly new, right? Where, like, we're seeing... When we talk about, like, narcos in South America, like, cigarettes in America, it, it, it it's not a new concept. But um, anyways, an increasing Chinese addiction to opium fed a boom in imports of the drug and led to an unfavorable trade balance paid for by a steady loss of China's silver reserves. Um, In light of the economic effect of the opium trade, plus the physical and mental deterioration of opium users, Chinese authorities banned the opium trade. So obviously, this didn't go down well with the British. And in the early 1940s, this turned out into an all-out conflict that obviously the British with their superior naval forces and armies at the time, because essentially like what, what you start to see, I feel like common theme is it was almost like too late at that point where like China had they banned it maybe 20 years previous. But this kind of stuff has like caused poverty. It's killed a lot of people. It's caused a lot of unrest. And then you're absolutely no match when you finally decide to put your foot down. You're no match for your opponent, Great Britain, especially at the time, just like with their um, superior military force, Mm -hmm. which results. um, So obviously they take a couple cities. The British basically just own the Chinese, you know, like they can't they can't fight back. And it results in the Treaty of Nanking. which was the first of many commercial treaties because you'll see that a lot of other Western nations start to pursue these treaties because they end up being so beneficial for them. But just like, 
I, I have this thing, and Joe, I'm going to ask you to, like, do the Trump voice, huh. but I was just like, this this d- treaty just makes me think, like, terrible deal. Worst deal ever. It's the worst deal that's ever been made. <laughs> it's just a terrible. Rip it up. Throw it away. <laughs> Obamacare. We're going to rip it up. We're going to throw it out. <laughs> the Treaty of Nanking. <laughs> the Treaty of Nanking. Rip it up. Um, but so, what the British got out of this one... The cession of Hong Kong to the British crown. So this is where the British get Hong Kong. The opening of five treaty ports where the British would have residence and trade rights. The right of British nationals in China who were accused of criminal acts to be tried in British courts. And the limitation of duties on imports and exports to a modest rate. So I'm not really sure what the heck China got out of this that made this a good deal for them, but that's kind of why I thought terrible deal. Um, But so then several Western nations follow, um, such as Germany, Italy, Denmark, Spain, and the United States. And they all signed these types of treaties. And by the early 1900s, almost 90 Chinese ports were under foreign control. So what's wild about that to me is essentially any kind of wealth. And, you know, this makes sense for kind of colonial and imperial times was the idea that um, kind of these greater powers, they go into other countries like in Africa, like in Asia, and they just like strip the wealth for themselves. You know, it was not. You know, they just took China's wealth. They just took India's wealth. They just took Africa's wealth. Um, All the resources and stuff that lead to wealth. Yeah, exactly. Um, what was that? Uh, the term that Gabby used. Oh, Gabby is my cousin's wife from Brazil. Oh, what did she use? Um, Ex. No, wasn't oh, it? extract. Extraction. Yeah. Yeah, extraction. It, it definitely that was definitely like a term that was like taught in their like schools in Brazil. The concept of extraction mm-hmm. and like, well, their their resources were extracted and just taken. Yeah, like how like just Portugal extracted from the natives of mm-hmm. Brazil or what is Brazil now? Mm-hmm. Well, and there's an interesting concept in globalization where there's three different types of colonies that were identified around this time, and there's you know. Colony number one, which ends up being one of the most successful colonies, is the one where you eliminate the native population. Mm, And basically, which is just America, like you eliminate the native population and you just cultivate the wealth and like resources for yourself. And you become like the best nation, basically. Yeah. Like you just. Why America is so big. You basically just like took the land, you know, and then you just replace the native population with your own. Then like the next most most. Um successful is like the one where it's kind of like a mix where native population doesn't get eliminated but they're definitely like subjugated yeah um where it's kind of like uh, you get to be here but like we're taking everything that like actually matters and then you have kind of like a smaller like upper class of like the colonists you know just succeeding yeah and then, I think of like South Africa with like apartheid and definitely stuff. like a South Africa and then you know the least um successful and i'm trying to think of what exact country was it it might have been uganda or um i can't i can't remember it's another it, whichever one was like a dutch colon, uh, colony colony in that africa might be uganda. yeah it might be uganda i'll have to double check um, google. i can get on the google machine where then like even worse they they basically just use the native population as almost like slave trade and they and like you said they extract all of the resources and leave, and ultimately, at some point, they might Ghana. leave Ghana, Angola, Ivory Coast, 
And that Senegal. was for rubber. Rubber? Yeah. Just horrible. But they just take everything that, and then they end up kind of like leaving the country entirely destabilized, you know? Yeah. Interesting. Nice, yeah. nice tangent. Nice tangent. All right, back to China. Back to China. China. Um, so anyways, 90 Chinese, Chinese ports were under foreign control. And during this time, there were several movements and rebellions against Western influence. I mean, duh. Like, by this point, I'd probably be pretty pissed. Um, and then in order to maintain a somewhat peaceful environment and to retain a compliant government, the U.S. advocated for the open door policy, which limited any. I mean, even just the name is kind of funny. I'm like, reminds me of like what like teenagers have with their parents. The open door policy is <laughs> not a closed. It's not a locked door in this household. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can come in at any time. Which I, that's what's so funny to me is I'm just like, so that doesn't sound like a great policy for China either. Oh, open door policy. The West we can, can come, come in, in whenever. whenever we want. Yeah. The U.S. advocated for the open door policy, which limited any power advantage of one foreign nation could have over the other. So like, you know, Germany can't have more privileges than the U.S., but again, still struggling to see how any of these deals yeah. really benefit China. Yeah. Um, China would become a republic in 1912, and that would be basically the last of the last imperial dynasty was overthrown. Um, so kind of similar to um, like France when we were talking about it, where it's like this is the end of a monarch of an absolute monarchy. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, this was a very turbulent period as there were many power struggles and the republic initially lacked a strong military to kind of like put just, you know, result in any kind of order mm -hmm. so we're gonna fast forward yeah, let's get like to the meat and potatoes here. we're gonna fast forward like maybe 10 years but that's all context that you might want to keep in mind as we get into yeah. the nitty-gritty yeah this is the more important historical background that leads to like the china we know today mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right yep okay you want to go or sure I go? um you wrote up this part ah, i mean i can start um okay so a civil war between the nationalists and the communists lasted between 1927 and 1949, um, with <laughs> a brief interlude for World War II. Yeah, just like that if little thing. If anyone knows what occurred then. Um, so from this conflict emerged the leader of the Communist Party, Mao Zedong. I'm sure you all remember him from maybe middle school history classes. Mm -hmm. I feel like I learned about Mao back then. Um, and after the victory, he would lead China until his death in 1976. Under his leadership, the government set out to modernize and industrialize China. Uh, but this was limited to the confines of communist beliefs. So how, you know, how well, much can you modernize and industrialize if you're strict communist, you know? Well, and I would say, like, I f feel like that sounds to me so much. And there's more to come with Mao. It feels like a direct backlash to kind of like Western influence, you yeah. know, where like very anti-capitalist, very anti the West um, because they were taken advantage of for so long. Yeah, because they were know? taken advantage of for so long. Which is like kind of why it's like why it's so like China's so interesting with how they were able to almost like weaponize all of these people who are super anti-capitalistic uh, to then you like use them to become hyper-capitalistic and like jump into the world well, I was stage seeing. so much. Obviously, we'll, we'll get there, but like mm -hmm. that's kind of how they were able to jump so quickly is because they had an entire population of people they could basically send to like essentially slave labor because they were so anti-capitalist. It's, it's pretty interesting. Well, and um, one other note, just kind of as we were doing research, I was seeing these um, 
article saying, is China the new colonial power? So I think you have in your notes, Joe, a little bit about like the irony of history. And I just think, you know, how ironic that, you know, what was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a colony, you know, to now become the colonizer. Yeah. Um, So basically like, um, the modernized and industrializing of China from Mao basically believed in collectivized agriculture, redistri- redistribution of resources. Um, these efforts improved the average standard of living and saw a big decline in poverty, rise in literacy rates, and an increase in educational and economic opportunities. So, I mean, that's great, right? <laughs> good things, good things. Good things, yeah. However, the, the level of growth was considered moderate and uneven where cities prospered and rural areas remained a little bit stagnant. Uh, so China's real GDP grew at an average rate of about 6.7% from 1953 to 1978, although this is debated because the Chinese lie. Right? <laughs> Basically, they, they sometimes don't put out the correct figures. So economist Ang- Angus Madison puts China's actual average annual real GDP growth uh, during this period at about 4.4%. And um, just for anyone who might not know, GDP means gross oh, domestic product. True. Yeah. I forgot um, to mention that. I figured everybody who was listening knew, but I guess not. You can't assume. Yeah, you can't assume. Not everybody's as genius as us. <laughs> um So there were also some major setbacks, uh, including during a project called The Great Leap Forward. And feel free to chime in here, Kira, because I'm sure you know quite a bit about The Great Leap Forward. (laughs) But it aimed to industrialize the countryside. It was ultimately a rushed effort with high costs that contributed to a horrible famine that resulted in the deaths of about 20 million people. No small number. 20 million. It's like crazy. Like we don't even like really hear about that stuff and like. 20 million people, there's so many. Like, there's more than the Holocaust. Yeah. Obviously, it's much different. But, like, is it different? Not really. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy because then there was another thing, like, in Mao's, like, rise to power. Because um, during the Civil War, and I'm going to get the – I think it might have just been called the Long Walk. But it started out with – and, again, I do not have exact numbers, but I think it was somewhere around, like, 40,000 people started on this Long Walk. And only – maybe 3,500 people survived the walk. So, I mean, I I feel like you just have to keep in mind, though, that, like, it's just a brutal time. And, you know, it's weird nowadays, I think, because we'd all love for history to be kind of sunshine and rainbows, but it just can't be sunshine and rainbows. It's it's impossible, right? Mm. And, you know, so, so, so sad. And clearly, like, just a huge political mistake to you know to do this yeah but um some of these notes are a little bit out of order so i'm gonna yeah sure um yeah so during the 1950s all of china's individual household farms were collectivized into large communes and to support rapid industrialization the central government undertook large-scale investments in physical and human capital during the 1960s and 70s so that was kind of what i talked about with weaponizing the people Mm -hmm. Um, and then in the 1960s the seemingly slow progress was considered to be caused by the existence of any capitalist ideology or history so the government really set out to destroy the four olds old customs old culture old habits and old ideas this resulted in the destruction of some of china's historical sites and writings also the death of worshipers of might of what might have been considered old faith so kind of depressing you know 
just like a hard time where it's 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 interesting because it's just kind of like it's so clearly you know in hindsight is 2020 but it's so clearly people that like want progress at all costs and that literally and that includes humans right mm-hmm. where it's like progress 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 we need to push forward but it also in a weird way i feel like you know potentially short-sighted thoughts short-sighted solutions you know to think that like oh it can only be because of you know the old faiths or you know the old or um old ideas when you know maybe it's just they're still trying to find their footing yeah yeah Yeah. crazy and so really as a result by 1978 nearly three-fourths of industrial production was produced by centrally controlled state-owned enterprises so soes so if we refer to soes that's what it stands for state-owned enterprises according to centrally planned output targets Private enterprises and foreign invested firms were generally barred. A central goal of the Chinese government was to make China's economy relatively self-sufficient. And then after Mao's death, the government took a less strict absolutionist direction and moved towards a more hybrid ideology that Deng Xiaoping would call in 1984 socialism with Chinese characteristics. So this is when we start to see kind of the, the shift from those like state-owned, centrally centrally controlled um, enterprises and things like that towards more of like a capitalistic private ownership um, is it, is this this time right here mm-hmm. yeah, after Mao's the, death. So Mao is kind of the, the cork preventing mm-hmm. hyper-capitalism, basically. That being said, I mean, I can totally see where when, when we talk about where was China, you know, at the turn of the century, not in a good place, right? And like they only got rid of the imperial mm-hmm. family in 1912. And then it was it was a republic, but it was a very troubled republic. So I feel like, you know, got to give Mao yeah, some credit, say- at least in the sense of he definitely was the guy that put them on track. Yeah, yeah. Like he almost like needed Mao in like this time period of like complete central control of these types of things um, to almost like set the groundwork for a then massive jump in economic prosperity and stuff like that with China because they were just like taken advantage of and extracted from for so long. They like needed this kind of focused effort where everything was centrally controlled, a little bit more socialist communist before they could become what China is today. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so then like massive economic reforms initiated a decentralization of the economy and industry. The West was not rejected. And in fact, China was now more open to international influence. So this is really the the shift. Um, so yeah. China's jump kind of initially started with leveraging Hong Kong and Taiwan. Yeah, pretty interesting stuff here. Yeah. Um, feel free to jump in if you want, but I can take the first bit. Yeah, go for it. Yay. Um, first, in contract, uh, in contrast to the Soviet bloc, which you have to keep in mind is still communist at this time too, I think up until like 1989, 1990 before the Soviet Union falls, um, China found a way to benefit in a twist of historical irony. Told you that that would come up in the notes from its colonial <laughs> legacy. Britain controlled Hong Kong up until 1997 and Portugal controlled Macau up till 1999. And the U.S. continues to use, so up to this day, um, Taiwan as a protectorate. These colonies and protectorates connected China to the world economy even before its full entry into the world system. 
In Mao's era, Hong Kong provided about one third of China's foreign currency, which I think is just a crazy figure. Um, Without Hong Kong, China would not have been able to import as much technology. After the end of the Cold War during Deng Xiaoping's (laughs) rule, Hong Kong was very important for China's modernization. Mm -hmm. So um, to me, this tells me that like they still wanted kind of like that pathway to Western technology in like the Western world. Mm -hmm. Just and I I think that speaks to kind of like their social socialism with um, Chinese characteristics where they're like we're doing our own thing but like we're gonna take advantage kind of like what the west did to them where they're like we're gonna take advantage of as much that the west can provide us yeah and it kind of just like helped them springboard right they used hong kong to gain even more access to the foreign currency to import all sorts of things including high technology um, and to take advantage of its skilled labor force like management professionals so they almost kind of just used other countries as like resources and were able to kind of like springboard a little bit. They kind of like flipped the script. Yeah. And like kind of jump quicker and not have to go through a lot of the growing pains that industrial countries mm-hmm. used. And you'll, you'll see like later on in this right here. But so China used Macau first as an ideal place. So Macau is uh, the the Vegas of, of Asia, as we mentioned, um, is an ideal place for smuggling goods into mainland China, took advantage of the island's notoriously lax enforcement of law. So, I mean, think about it, the casino city, the, the Vegas of Asia, pretty lax enforcement of law. Um, and they used it as an ideal platform for capital import and export. And then Taiwan was very important, not only in terms of capital investments, but more importantly, in the long run, was its technology transfer, first and foremost in the semiconductor industry. Which is very relevant today. Yeah, exactly. And my um, some of my friends, I have a, a CFA friend who's talked to me quite a bit about the semiconductor industry in Taiwan and some stuff to, to invest in. They basically like create every semiconductor that is used in iPhones and um, then it's obviously assembled in China for the most part. So well, and nowadays, like, you know, I think there's kind of like this very subtle conflict between China and the United States. And I think it's for that exact reason, mm. right? Control mm-hmm. over the semiconductor. Yeah. Yeah. Wealth. So, yeah. Hong Kong and Taiwanese investors were also one of the key reasons for rapid growth of the Chinese provinces of Jiangsu, Fujian, and Guangdong. Uh, and then... Secondly, China possessed what Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky called the privilege of historical backwardness. So Mao's Communist Party took advantage of the country's pre-capitalist past. So this is kind of what I was talking about earlier. It inherited a strong absolutionist state that it would retool and use for its project of national economic development. It also took advantage of an atomized pre-capitalist peasantry. So like the poor people who were just like in complete poverty, uh, which had been accustomed to absolute absolutism for 2,000 years to squeeze labor out of them for so-called primitive accumulation from 1939 through the 1970s. So they really were able to take advantage of just like generations of poverty to like leverage that workforce uh, to then jump in production so much. But they're running into issues now, which I'll get into later with some of the economics, but like the the labor cost, the cost of labor in China is going way up. So it's like they're not oh, going to wow. be able to do what what they've historically been doing because like people are just like, no, I want more money. So like you're going to see that there's probably a new 
China where companies are starting to like move away from China because the they don't get the labor is too, too expensive. And I actually listened to a podcast recently. It might be the next the next made in China might be made in Mexico. Mm. which is oh, interesting. Wait, yeah. I think I've yeah. I listened to that too. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, I think that's another interesting thing where like, it's not a new concept of taking advantage of generations of impoverished people, you know, and like just hoping that they don't wake up to their t- terrible conditions. I mean, like same a- thing with like the French revolution where like the, the peasant class got tired yeah, of it. Yeah, exactly. And then all of a sudden their numbers are too, they just be, they're like more powerful than yeah. the, the people. Um, but yeah, we can put a pin in that. But that's really interesting. Um, Later from the 1980s on, the Chinese state drafted this labor force from the countryside into the big cities to work as cheap labor in export processing zones. They made nearly 300 million rural migrants work like slaves in sweatshops. Thus, the backwardness of China's absolutionist state and class relations offered the Chinese ruling class advantages to develop both state and private capitalization uh, capitalism. So China's backwardness also made it possible for it to leap over stages of development. This is one of my kind of favorite parts. By replacing archaic means and methods of development with advanced capitalistic uh, ones. So a great example of this is China's adoption of high technology and telecommunications. So instead of following every step of more advanced capitalist societies, beginning first with using telephones for online communication, it installed fiber optic cable throughout the country nearly nearly all at once. Wow. So um, I'm obviously a sales engineer. I did some some studying on uh, on like basically internet and like fiber optic cabling and stuff like that. And like telephone lines is like so old fashioned and it's like mm-hmm. super slow and it's kind of like the development like the u.s like we start on telephone lines and it's like it takes time to upgrade the entire infrastructure and all this stuff and just like the mere fact that and, and fiber optic is the the best like it right. uses light fiber optic it uses light waves basically to for internet that's why it's the fastest um and basically like the mere fact that they could just come in and like install fiber optic throughout the entire country at once is just like insane to me and like basically like that's well why would you start from the beginning if you could skip exactly but it's like it's just like normally countries don't have the ability to skip so that's why china is so interesting because Mm -hmm. they had these connections with like the high tech and like hong kong taiwan and like yeah those like resources like they were able to almost just like jump normal progress of like a nation and just all of a sudden just be like super high tech wow. without actually having to like like do anything through. yeah like exactly like it's kind of crazy like how long it's like the u.s to get like you know high yeah. tech like it's, it took hundreds of well, years still now like we're kind we're of still behind, behind. We're behind yeah, the exactly. curve on tech because like we weren't able to you know do stuff like it's not like fiber optics everywhere in the u.s Mm-mm. you know but I Aren't there that was literally really like dead zones in the U.S. when it comes to like internet access and stuff? Yeah, definitely. But like it's in like, you know, Montana and just like mm-hmm. places where there just Less isn't populated. a lot of people. Yeah. So it's like everything is always a, a reaction to demand. If mm-hmm. there's very little demand for service in like Montana and like like because there's not a lot of people there, they're going to be like, why? Like Verizon's going to be like, why would we spend money on resources to to put service there like, yeah it doesn't matter you know very true everything is a a reaction to demand to demand interesting so 
I'll pass it over to you. The start of the reforms. Woohoo! All right. So, beginning in 1979, China launched several economic reforms. The central government initiated price and ownership incentives for farmers, which enabled them to sell a portion of their crops on the free market. In addition, the government established four special economic zones along the coast for the purpose of attracting foreign investment, boosting exports, and importing high-technology products into China. Additional reforms, which followed in stages, sought to decentralize economic policymaking in several sectors, especially trade. Economic control of various enterprises was given to provincial and local governments, which were generally allocated to operate and compete on free market principles rather than under the direction of guidance of state planning. Don't mind me. I'm just pouring some salt. Oh, yeah. I do not mind. I do not mind. (laughs) It's like these these microphones are so good. They're going to pick up my eyes moving around. Um. What, I, what I'm super curious about later on, just because of, you know, the amount of exports. And I know you were just saying like made in China will become made in Mexico, but at least for the past 20 or 30 years, just how, you know, leading exports are from China, where it's so mm-hmm. interesting, especially like the relationship between the U.S. and Chinese government is about how like we just buy almost all their exports. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just interesting that like we're seeing kind of the groundwork being laid in the early 1980s for what is to come when they're very focused on trade. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so then in addition, citizens were encouraged to start their own businesses, which, hey, I appreciate that, like some entrepreneurial spirit. But that's, see, that's what's funny about like, people are like, oh, China's communists. And then it's like, you read this and you're like, Mm. no, they're not. They're socialist with Chinese characteristics. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's just like the mere fact of like, they're encouraged to start their own business. Like that's Mm -hmm. capitalism. Yeah, well, But they do a good like job of pretending they're not like hyper capitalist, but like- Kind of is. Well, it also kind of cracks me up because I, I feel like, you know, it definitely seems like from a governmental standpoint, they're communist. Yeah. But like then they, from, they have much, much more control of their people, like yeah. more of like authoritarianism. Like right. some of the stuff with like the COVID when like you just like saw videos of like the government or like the police forces like welding apartments closed to like leave people in there. It's like, could you ever imagine like the US doing that? Like, no, no, like I don't think so. I think. But then economically they feel capitalist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but is that necessarily a bad thing? Like that that goes that goes into a whole tangent for me where I'm just kind of like why we have to get where, especially in the U.S. at least, where it's like, oh, well, that person's a socialist. They're a bad guy. And like, oh, this person, they're like ultra capitalist. They're a bad guy. And I'm like, why are we so like crazy absolutist about any of these systems, you know, yeah. where uh, who came up with this? Like maybe ha- having a hybrid plan like the China. I mean, I'm not I'm not for welding people into apartments, <laughs> yeah. but I'm just saying like a hybrid isn't necessarily a bad thing. I no, feel I like. think there's like good arguments on the entire spectrum of like socialism versus capitalism. And like just because we come from America, which is like hyper capitalistic, mm-hmm. we're kind of like brainwashed early on, like. So how bad like socialism is. It's like, well, there are some good aspects that like there's yeah. a reason why it's like it exists. Yeah, it exists and there's like some popularity. Well, aren't some them. like your- I don't I, I don't personally think like like it is a spectrum and I don't personally think that like the US is doing a great job with like we're just hyper capitalistic yeah, to the point where good. it's like our entire population, 50% is gonna be obese in like mm-hmm. 2030 or whatever. 
because like, because you know, there's just no regular and like it's like all about like how much money you can make and it's like, like we don't care about the health of our people not at all everybody's addicted to cigarettes it's like everything or like is social tr- media too or like I, I also don't think there's anything necessarily good about prison the, system like the prison system it's I don't think there's profit. I don't think there's anything <laughs> like, good what? about like the three richest people in the country owning the same amount of wealth as like the bottom 40% of our population yeah. I'm like I don't think there's that's not a good thing yeah. guys the prison stuff is wild like how it's literally for profit yeah like privatized prisons it's like wait what like there's like literally like business models for prisons like that just Mm -hmm. means you're incentivizing like more arrests and more like criminals and then then they take the criminals and they literally have them for like slave labor yeah they leverage them to like work and they make like 20 cents an hour it's like yeah. wait is that just modern day slavery <laughs> I, I think so which is like kind of just so. crazy it's so mind-boggling to think but it's like how can we make money off of just about anything yeah even literally. human suffering i'm yeah. just kind of like come which is on. like there should be like a like a point where we're just like wait this is just inhumane yeah but then it's like oh you don't like america get out <laughs> it's like well no i'm just critical of like like i try to logically think about mm-hmm. things being able to critically think about yeah. any of these countries i mean nobody's perfect fam yeah. nobody's perfect yeah all right back um, to back, back to it back Chilean. to it um we're gonna rip it up where was i gonna throw oh, it out. okay in addition, state price controls on a wide range of products were gradually eliminated. Trade liberalization was also a major key to China's economic success. Libs. Removing trade barriers encouraged greater competition and attracted FDI, foreign direct investment inflows. So uh, that's another thing, <laughs> right? Where they're like, okay, like, let's, let's introduce competition, which is a core characteristic of capitalism. And then they're trying to bring in foreign investment as well. Yeah, exactly. They want more people to uh, invest in China. Deng Xiaoping reportedly referred to this as crossing the river by touching the stones. And that, I love that saying, because I've always wanted to, um, <laughs> I've always wanted to like run across a, a river. And touch those, all the stones. Yeah. Like, you know, in like, in like the a Zen garden. Oh, They yeah. have like the, the water with like the little rice patties on it and people, you got to run like really fast. Or if you don't run fast, you like sink. Oh my God. I think it was in like Three Ninjas, maybe. Hmm. I don't know. Some sort of. Sounds fun. Asian influenced movie. But Zen Gardens, those look kind of sweet. That would be a great thing to do. Like if you went to like Japan or something, mm-hmm. go to like a Zen Garden. Yeah, that would be really Beautiful. cool. Some koi ponds. Mm. Oh, well, I think what's really cool at the PBD Essex Museum is um, Pem. how they have the, yeah, Pem, how they have the like China house that they literally mm. shipped over yeah. and then rebuilt here. Um, yeah. People no, can have cool. their opinions on whether that should be allowed to happen, but uh, it is kind of interesting to learn how like a se- an 18th century Chinese family lived. Um, yeah. But anyways, back, back to it. Back to the, the back to it. Task at hand. So the causes of growth. So really, it was there's about you know two main causes of growth. One being large scale large scale capital investment financed by large domestic savings, which the savings bit is pretty interesting in foreign investments. So that foreign direct investment FDIs is what we'll refer to them as. Um, and then the other cause of growth was rapid productivity growth. Um, but around kind of the large scale investment, so economic reforms led to higher efficiency in the economy, which boosted output and increased resources for additional investment in the economy. So China has historically maintained a high rate of savings, 
This is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. When reforms were initiated in 1979, domestic savings as a percentage of GDP, uh, gross domestic product, stood at 32%. However, most Chinese savings during this pe- period were generated by the profits of SOEs, state-owned enterprises, which were used by the central government for domestic investment. So economic reforms, which included the decentralization of economic production, led to substantial growth in Chinese household savings, as well as corporate savings. So as a result, China's gross savings as a percentage of GDP is the highest among major economies. So the large level of domestic savings has enabled China to support a high level of investment. In fact, China's gross domestic savings uh, levels far exceed its domestic investment levels, which have made China a large net global lender. Hence mm. how the U.S. is always uh, in debt, in debt <laughs> and borrowing money from China. So a lot of that kind of so, co- yeah, I'm, goes I'm, back I'm, to um, Mao's, Mao's China. I'm going to yeah. make a quick guess and just say that uh, we do not have a high rate of savings in proportion to our GDP no, probably in the U.S. Not. Probably not. Um, so I found that point really interesting about the savings. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously attracting foreign investment was a, a massive cause of growth. It's also kind of funny, again, like going back to like the irony where I think and I think the difference here is kind of like, yeah, there is international influence and yeah, there's international investment. But now China's in the driver's seat, you know, where I feel like when we when we went back to kind of like the 1800s early 1900s they had all that international influence but they weren't in the driver's seat and therefore they got taken advantage of and now they've turned it back around and made sure like that they're in the better position to control what's happening yeah respect 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 Respect. um and then so productivity improvements so the improvements to productivity were caused largely by a reallocation of resources to more productive uses, especially in sectors that were formerly heavily controlled by the central government, such as agriculture, trade, and services. For example, agricultural reforms boosted production, freeing workers to pursue employment in the more productive manufacturing sector, classic, made in China. China's decentralization of the economy led to the rise of non-state enterprises, such as private firms which tended to pursue more productive activities than the centrally controlled state-owned enterprises, SOEs, and were more market-oriented and more efficient. Additionally, a greater share of the economy, mainly the export sector, we'll get into some exports as well, was exposed to competitive forces. Local and provincial governments were allowed to establish and operate various enterprises without the interference from the government. So classic Private firms, competition just leads to more productive activities. Like if you're competing against a company, is there something going on? Oh, um, <laughs> I didn't know if your headphones weren't working or something. Um, so it's like, you know, if there's more produ- uh, private firms, you're competing against companies, you're going to figure out ways to do things more productively. And that's going to just improve everything. More competition. That's why mm-hmm. athletes get better because you're competing Competing. aggressively against other people to beat them. And there's always records being broken. Humans are getting better and better. Um, so like when you don't have competition, things just remain kind of stagnant, the norm. So obviously when you introduce these non-state enterprises, 
productivity goes up. So in addition, um, foreign direct investment in China brought with it new technology and processes that boosted efficiency. So there were reportedly 445,000 foreign invested enterprises, FIEs, registered in China in 2010, employing 55.2 million workers or 15.9% of the urban workforce. Uh, FIEs account for a significant share of China's industrial output. That level rose from 2.3% in 1990 to a high of 35.9% in 2003, but fell to 25.9% in 2011. In addition, uh, foreign invested enterprises are responsible for a significant level of China's foreign trade. At their peak, FIEs accounted for 58.3% of Chinese exports in 2005 and 59.7% of imports, but these levels have subsequently fallen, reaching 41.7% and 43.7% in 2018. So all these foreign invested enterprises coming to China, bringing new technology, uh, they're essentially uh, improving Chinese efficiency output because they're bringing with them the best technology. And like, there's just China's become like the hub of inflows and outflows. And that mm-hmm. just only. Right. Like improves. to be able to manage both. Yeah. To, at such um, like a high rate. Like such a highly like diversified economy at this point. Yeah. You know? just, and like the rise is just exponential. Yeah. The rise is you know, like we've just never seen anything like it really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A rise like that. At the speed that they're going. Right. Because yeah. it's just kind of like it's almost it's it's funny to think about, you know, how long did it take the U.S. to, to become there, an right? economic powerhouse? World like War two. 200 years basically. <laughs> And then, you know, similar questions with like Great Britain and other major powerhouses. But um, it's interesting you mentioned that about like the rate because they're actually going to be running into some trouble. mm -hmm. Um, So as China's technological development begins to converge with major development countries, um, its levels of productivity gains and thus real GDP growth could slow significantly from its historic levels unless China becomes a major center for for new tech and innovation or implements new comprehensive economic reforms. So they've kind of like, we've seen their massive come up and like, it just is slowly like, they're just going to slow down because mm-hmm. there's just not, because well, there's nothing else. Right. We're yeah. like, it, it, like we've talked like, about where labor's like, going up now. It's like kind of like, you know, like, well, it's, and then their population declining too. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, we'll actually like, get into that. That's- yeah. Right. Like the demographic aspect of the rise of nations, you know, and yeah, that's a really interesting topic. Like looking over the next hundred years on a global scale, but like China, it's expected that they just peaked. Their population just peaked this past year. Um, and they actually dropped in population by 460,000 people or something like that this yeah. year. Yeah. The Economic Intelligence Unit, EIU, projects that China's real GDP growth will slow considerably over the next several decades, eventually converging on U.S. growth rates uh, by the year 2037. So this part actually is pretty interesting. The Chinese government has indicated its desire to move away from its current economic model of fast growth at any cost to more smart economic growth, which seeks to reduce reliance on energy intensive and high polluting industries and rely more on high technology, green energy and services. 
now like yeah it's your only choice <laughs> you yeah. can't do the fast growth but it kind of reminds me of like the industrial revolution in the u.s where it's like it's almost like china for so long was in that same phase of like the industrial revolution where everything's just high polluting go, 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 go. yeah high polluting create everything like bring so much wealth into the nation mm-hmm. but you're just like destroying like like Your shanghai country. it's like hanging out in shanghai for like a day is like smoking a pack of cigarettes or yeah. something because so there's just so much pollution but now it's like it's interesting because it's like how do we get to the fully green energy less pollution without going through a period of very high pollution <laughs> you know right yeah like well, how do you I'm- just like implement that it's also interesting, it's like, like I've I've heard kind of like the arguments, like when they start talking about kind of like these agreements around the environment and, you know, how do we cut down on emissions? But there's a certain level of hypocrisy in the West, you know, to kind of like we've already completed our industrial revolution. So like you're saying, we've gone through our eras yeah, of like exactly. high popu- pollution, but then like looking to like rising nations like India, China, lots of countries in Africa. And it's kind of like, oh, no, you guys can't have industrial revolutions now because like we can't have emissions. But it's like, you know, these major powers that probably ha- have result have caused a lot of damage to our environment are now trying to go preach to other countries that like they can't do the exact same thing even though you know and and i'll be curious about what china's doing right because could they become an example of a country where like hey you actually don't need like a full-on industrial revolution to be a successful country but up until now that's been the playbook right in order to become like a well-developed you know, well-oiled economic machine, you need to go through um, a, a high-polluting industrial revolution. But maybe, like, China can show us, like, if they could be an example of a country that didn't really need to do that. Or at least not have as long of a timeline in their industrial revolution. Yeah, I guess, right. I was going to say. They've definitely been doing it. Pollution, yeah. Well, they've definitely been doing it, but, like, 30 years versus, like, you know, if, if you count. Like, yeah, right? Because, like, the U.S. probably had, like, a, over 100 years. So I'm just yeah. like... Well, can can you guys do this in uh, forty rather than a hundred? Yeah. yeah, right. Like it almost becomes like a playbook for yeah. like other developing nations, and then we can like implement it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what's the centralizing force that puts companies on the or companies countries on like the right track. I don't know. It's just yeah. such like a shit show. <laughs> shit show. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Um, all right, cool. So some other areas that we can touch on with China. Mm-hmm. So the wage increases recently. I'll definitely tap on on you for some of this, but mm-hmm. the decline in China's working age population may have contributed to the rising wages in China. So obviously this is kind of the big point here is wages are going way up in China. So it's like com- companies are just like, wait... It's kind of too expensive now. Like everything mm-hmm. was always made in China for so long because it was just like leveraging the poor peasants to do everything. And now it's like the wages are going way up. So China's average monthly wages in 1990 were $55 compared to 32 for Vietnam and 221 for Mexico. However, in 2018, China's average monthly wages uh, or $990 were 316% higher than Vietnam's wages at 238 and 158.5% higher than Mexico's at 383. So from 2007 to 2018, China's average monthly wages rose by 263%. Um, 
So the the American Chamber of Commerce in China 2019 Business Climate Survey listed rising labor costs as the second biggest challenge facing U.S. firms in China. So interesting. Very interesting how kind of what I was mentioning about Mexico earlier is like mm-hmm. like nine hundred ninety dollars the average monthly wages for Chinese workers now. It's like all these companies are like everything is about money. Every, all these companies are gonna be like, wait, <laughs> should we? move to Mexico, should yeah. we move our production to Mexico or Vietnam, like, and basically- Wherever it's cheaper take, again. Take advantage of people once again. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, like where, where do we need to go now to take advantage? Yeah, but like, I mean, like 10 years from now, it can be a very different world where everything just says like, made Mexico, made yeah. Mexico, and maybe Mexico becomes well, the next then what China, does China's, you know? Uh, what does China's um, economy look like with fewer exports, you know? Yeah, exactly. Interesting, but- I wanted to touch on you or touch on you <laughs> for the, the one child policy. Yeah. So like that could be another a big aspect of like the decline in working age population. Mm-hmm. So it's all these all these things that like factor into why countries are successful or like things you don't even think about. So like having the one child policy, like there's literally just not enough people not enough to people. work. <laughs> so from 1970 to 2016, China literally was like, you can only have one kid. Well, and like it was, it was like not enough people in like the right age, and it's kind of the thing we talk about with Africa, mm-hmm. right? What was that like? Well, that they're con- they're considered like this huge like economic opportunity because you know for much of the developed world, so you're talking like parts of Asia, Europe, you, the United States. I mean, entirely North America, even parts of South America, where populations are going to peak. Whereas in Africa, none of their populations are expected to peak until after 2100 because you also have to think about, so like the birth rate in a lot of these countries um, in Africa, like they can be as high as like five babies per woman, right? Whereas like in the US right now, I think we're somewhere around like 2.1 per woman. So I I believe that's around like replacement rate because like you have to think about it this way where in order to avoid your population shrinking, you need to have like a baby for each reproductive person. So like, I guess like for the parents, like for each couple, they need to have two kids. Hmm. But if you, you know, Japan's running into it where they're significantly below two, China's below two. And these countries are even trying to give like tax incentives. Like, hey, we'll literally give you money to have babies, but just nobody's really that interested, right? And, you know, for multiple reasons, but- I've heard there's some issues in Japan with like, like men and like depression and like uh, low T and like people are just like people live at home till they're like 30 and stuff. Well, and, I mean, in China, like there have been stories about how they're like kidnapping women from neighboring countries yeah. to try to bring them in. Because the other problem with the one child policy was usually if you had to pick one child, um, they chose the boy. Hmm. Right. So like actually a lot of like um, a lot of the Chinese orphans that resulted out of the one child policy or like also the abortions were like females. Yeah. And so then, like, that's another problem for them because not only do they have a shrinking population or, like, an aging population, but they also – it's not even that, like, they have few fewer younger people. They also straight up have, like, fewer women to produce yeah. more people. So they just kidnap them from Cambodia. Yeah. <laughs> like, classic, it's classic. like a crazy, like, human trafficking thing. I, I don't know how widespread it is, but – it, it's Wouldn't going put it on. Past them, though. Yeah, it's going on. I mean, but like that, like the thing is, like that's going to be a problem for a lot of countries. But it's just hitting China first. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, back back on track here. Only a, a few more sections left. 
but the foreign direct investment outflows of China, so the sharp increase in China's global FDI outflows in recent years appears to be largely driven by a number of factors, including Chinese government policies and initiatives to encourage firms to, quote, go global. <laughs> so the government wants to use FDI to gain access to IPR, technology, know-how, uh, famous brands, etc., in order to move Chinese firms up the value-added chain in manufacturing and services, boost domestic innovation and development of Chinese brands, and help Chinese firms, especially the state-owned enterprises, to become major global competitors. So you're really seeing them go global, essentially, and like kind of change like where they stand, obviously, in the value-added chain. So like. They're so used to being just like the factory manufacturers. And like now that it's like, that's not really a strategy anymore. It's like, all right, how can we be the next like, you know, Air Jordan and like, mm -hmm. like kind of like create brands and help, you know, Alibaba and Chinese brands be the next kind of Amazon and like things like that, because that's just the, the strategy they have to take now with less emphasis on just like manufacturing. The, yeah. Um, China's slowing economy and rising labor costs have also encouraged greater Chinese overseas FDI in order to help firms diversify risk and expand to business opportunities beyond the China market, and in some cases to relocate less competitive firms from China to low-cost countries. Um, so it is just kind of crazy. China's basically just the U.S. at this point with like... I feel like it's probably like a natural evolution yeah, of their exactly. economy, like, right? They're not they're just like, oh crap. So like we got this, we became like a world leader from kind of the the industrial revolution manufacturing, and now it's like that doesn't work anymore. So now we're going to we we are the rich country now. And they are so used to like, you know, not being that. And now mm -hmm. they're just like moving to moving their businesses to smaller countries, low cost countries, taking advantage of those workers. <laughs> you know, it's just it's interesting, but I guess that's kind of the natural progression. But like what happens when you run out of poor yeah, countries exactly. to take advantage of? Um gonna have to rethink the strategy of, of economies. Yeah. Um Yeah, but so the strategy really so a key aspect of China's economic modernization and growth strategy during the nineteen eighties, nineties was to attract the foreign direct investment into China and to help boost the development of domestic firms. Investment by Chinese firms abroad was sharply restricted at this time. Um, but then in, in 2000, Chinese leaders initiated a new, the new Go Global strategy, which sought to encourage the Chinese firms, um, the state-owned enterprises, to invest overseas. Um, so obviously that's kind of the, the shift in the strategy there and the timeline around that. One key factor driving the investment is China's massive accumulation of the foreign, uh, foreign exchange reserves. Traditionally, a, a significant level of those reserves has been invested in relatively safe but low yielding assets such as the U.S. Treasury securities. Um, but on September 29, 2007, the Chinese government officially launched the China Investment Corporation in an effort to seek more profitable returns on its foreign exchange reserves and diversify away from its U.S. dollar holdings. So the CIC was originally funded at $200 billion, making it one of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds. Can I just say that's another great example of... And I don't know if they're necessarily thinking about what happened in the past, but another example of like them being like, hey, like, let's not get too reliant on another like foreign influence mm -hmm. and let's just like bring this in house. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I find that crazy world's largest, one of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds. Yeah, definitely. And another factor behind the government's drive to encourage more outward FDI flows has been to obtain natural resources such as oil and minerals deemed by the government as necessary to sustain China's rapid economic growth. And then finally, the Chinese government has indicated its goal of developing globally competitive Chinese firms with their own brands. So that was kind of what I talked about. Um, Investing in foreign firms or acquiring them is viewed as a method for Chinese firms to obtain technology, management skills, and often internationally recognized brands needed to help Chinese firms become more globally competitive. Uh, So that's kind of crazy. It's kind of like what we talked about with like Hong Kong and Taiwan with basically just obtaining the technology, the management skills from from Hong Kong, um, and then obviously the brands. And then this is an example of the brand. So in April 2005, Lenovo Group Limited, um, that's a Chinese computer company. I think most people know what Lenovo is, um, purchased IBM Corporation's personal computer division for $1.75 billion. So they basically just bought IBM. Yeah. Well, not IBM. No, no, their their personal computer division, yeah. Um, So the the largest destinations of cumulative Chinese FDI outflows through 2017 uh, were Hong Kong at 54.2%, Cayman Islands 13.9%, the British Virgin Islands 6.7%, and the United States at 3.7%. But uh, the first three of Hong Kong, Cayman Islands, and British Virgin Islands, they're likely redirected elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, me just thinking about kind of like those offshore banking accounts. Yeah, I'm kind of like, honestly. that's why that's there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So pretty, pretty crazy stuff. Very, mm-hmm. very interesting around the foreign direct investment. I mean, you got to say, they're flows. really thinking this through, you know, where I feel like it's it's so clearly like very strategic. Um, yeah. The way they went about um, reorganizing their economy. Yeah, I know. It is to benefit them. Crazy. Like the, the such a drastic shift in strategy, and they're still just so successful. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I mm-hmm. guess if you think about it. Um, okay, I mean the last part here, just really around just merchandise trade patterns. Um, so imports and exports, just some interesting tidbits here. Mm-hmm. So Chinese merchandise exports rose from fourteen billion in nineteen seventy nine to two point five trillion Insane. in two thousand eighteen. While merchandise imports grew from eighteen billion to two point one trillion, so <laughs> insane numbers. Yeah. So China's rapidly growing trade flows have made it an increasingly important and often the largest trading partner for many countries. According to China, it was the largest trading partner for one hundred thirty countries in two thousand thirteen. So just so the most world of them? is just yeah, <laughs> yeah, literally the world is just like moving through China. Yeah, everything. In 2009, China overtook Germany to become the world's largest merchandise exporter and the second largest merchandise importer after the United States. So they're literally number two and one on on imports and exports. What I find interesting about that is like probably, again, when we talk about kind of like next phase or like phases of their economy, I feel like, you know, they started out when you were saying about like the manufacturing economy, all the exports. But um, I had actually watched an interesting explained episode once about also kind of around the same topic about, about the rise of China, but how they've done a really good job of cultivating their own consumer 
economy because like i feel like for a long time the consumer economy they were focused on was the u.s Mm -hmm. but now they're focused on like how do we get you know chinese consumers to consume just as much as the u.s you know yeah yeah crazy um sorry i was like which is why just to tie it back to that point about how they're the second largest merchandise importer that would indicate to me that they're doing a good job of cultivating consumers back home because otherwise, why would you be the second largest importer? Mm, that's very true. Very true. Uh, in 2012, China overtook the United States as the world's largest merchandise trading economy. So that's exports plus imports. And then China's abundance of low cost labor has made it internationally competitive in many low-cost, labor-intensive manufacturers. But that might be changing. Yeah, it could be changing. As a result, manufactured products constitute a significant share of China's trade. A substantial amount of China's imports consists of parts and components that are assembled into finished products, such as consumer electronic products and computers, and then exported. Often, the value added to products in China by Chinese workers is relatively small compared to the total value of the product when it's shipped abroad. So that's interesting. Think about like, you know, the assembly of like an iPhone. They're not really adding much value. They're kind of just assembling it. Um, And then, yeah, it's crazy. China's biggest exports were electrical machinery and equipment, nuclear reactors, which I found interesting, boilers and machinery, furniture, plastics, and vehicles. Mm. So, yeah. And that's where we end off yeah, with I mean, that's, that's, China. Yeah. There's definitely a lot more to discuss, but it's mm-hmm. primarily like economic stuff, and I am not well equipped to- No, neither to, am to I. economics, but this was kind of like a blend of the history and with some some light economics, very basic mm-hmm. concepts. I Indeed. think it's not that hard to to grasp them. Yeah. I just got to say, though, you know, I feel like what an underdog story of the 20th century. Um, right. Just kind of like where when how we were talking about, like where they were at, at, in 1900 versus like where they end up being in right. 2000. Um, and I think it also like kind of speaks to like this theme of, you know, countries that continue continue to kind of like innovate. And granted, it's not always going to be perfect. But like if you're continuing to in- innovate, at least on an economic level. Yeah. And take advantage of people and take advantage of people, you know. <laughs> hey, but uh, like in a weird way, though, it sounds horrible and very cynical. But um, if they didn't take advantage of other people, they were going to get taken advantage of. It's true. It's true. I mean, they already had been. They already had been. So, yeah. And I think, you know, one something that I was thinking about was I could also see why you would want to, like, erase that past for you, mm-hmm. you know, because, yeah, just being taken advantage of. I mean, like, there's obviously that will probably be another episode at some point, just kind of like the history of colonialism and yeah. the unfortunate history. I mean, positive because the U.S. came out of it, but negative because a lot of negative stuff came from colonialism. But, hey. China, in a lot of ways, overcame all of the odds to now become, like, such a powerhouse. Yeah. Yeah, what is the next episode, then? What do you think? That is a good question. Um, oh, do we want to do something New Orleans-themed for when oh, we get back true. from New Orleans? Yeah, we can do New Orleans. So maybe we're going like, to New Orleans on March 30th. Yeah. So maybe before or after. We'll see. We'll see yeah. how we're doing. Yeah, we'll see. we'll see what we end up choosing. Yeah. Maybe like the War of 1812 or something. Mm. 
Yeah. I feel like that's a lesser known war. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. The British came back, fam. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll check you later no, and no, let no, you no. know. Oh, this oh, day in oh, history. Right, your come day on, in history. What am I doing? I'm so sorry. So what is today's date? March 19th? Yeah. Yes. March 19th. All right. March 19th, 2003. The U.S. and coalition initiate war in Iraq. Oh. Interesting. On March 19th, 2003, the United States, along with coalition forces primarily from the United Kingdom, initiated war on Iraq. President George W. Bush and his advisors built much of their case for war on the idea that Iraq, under dictator Saddam Hussein, possessed or was manufacturing weapons of mass destruction. Hostilities began about 90 minutes after a U.S.-imposed deadline for Saddam Hussein to leave Iraq or face war had passed. Damn. 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 All right. Well, this was a good episode. I like yeah. talking China. I like talking about China for sure. We have to do more of Asia. Yeah, definitely. More of Asia. Next episode, something New Orleans-esque. Yes, New Orleans-themed. New Orleans-themed. We'll, we'll noodle on it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, figure mm-hmm. it out. But yeah, everybody have a, a wonderful... Week. Week. Could be day. Could be the evening for you. Afternoon. Whatever it is. Could be two in the morning. Have a fantastic one of that. Yes. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye.